I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. Now, in the last episode, I talked about the first ever screenwriting class I ever took when I was a one-semester student at the University of Southern California back in 1980. I, I have my transcript with me here, and I, I can see the other courses I took at USC were all kind of interesting. There was Exploring Culture Through Film. That was an anthropology course. There was a course called Film Genres, which uh, in this case dealt with the horror genre. I saw a lot of awesome horror movies in that class. I also took a class called Animation Theory and Technique. And I have really good memories of that class. It was taught by this really cool guy, Bernie Groover, who was an animator for all of the classic Charlie Brown TV specials. Charlie Brown Christmas, It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown... Anytime I watch those shows and see Bernie Groover's name come up in the credits, I always smile and then I point out to my family, hey, I took a class from that guy once. As I recall, my class project for animation theory and technique was I did a 60-second animated film depicting uh, cells dividing. (laughs) God knows where that film is now, but that was my project. I seem to have gotten a pretty decent score in the class. There was another class that doesn't show up on my transcript because it was a no-credit course. That was a fantastic class called The History of Entertainment. doesn't get much better than that. So there's an old saying in the movie industry that the most exciting day of your life is your first day on a movie set. And the most boring day of your life is your second day on a movie set. There's a lot to that. But I'm here to tell you that I found a way to break that rule and make the second day on the film set just as exciting and just as fun as the first day. Here's how it happened. During my time at USC, I became aware that the seniors in the film program were required to create a a thesis film. They had to write, produce, direct, shoot, edit, score an entire film before they could graduate. And I found out that youngsters like me, a mere sophomore, could sign on as production assistants on these senior film projects. That sounded like a lot of fun to me. So I signed up and the film I ended up on was about the childhood of the great Michelangelo, which means that the film took place in the 1500s, which means it was a period piece. And period pieces are always a challenge. Uh, Even for professional film crews, they're a challenge. Everything is affected by the period, the costuming, the lighting, the makeup, the props, the scenes, the settings. Everything has to look absolutely right in a period piece or or it blows the illusion. With a student film, it's unbelievably ambitious. But this was the film I ended up on. The writer-director was this uh, guy who came from an incredibly rich family. Uh, I'll I'll just leave the details sparse there. And we had a full crew. We had the writer, director. We had uh, two producers. I don't remember their names. We had a director of photography who I spent a lot of time helping out and and a cast. And one of the interesting cast members was a young guy about 15 years old named Griffin O'Neill. Griffin played Michelangelo in this movie. Now, Griffin uh, was, is the son of the famous actor Ryan O'Neill, 
Ryan O'Neill starred in Love Story, What's Up Doc, Paper Moon, Barry Lyndon, a whole bunch of things. You'd probably recognize him if you saw him. So Griffin was a rich son of a movie star. That's how I'll describe him. And he was obviously central to the film because he played young Michelangelo. The other parts were played by, as I recall, some acting students and probably some professionals who the director had called in. Because the director came from a very rich family, he was able to pad his budget and bring in all sorts of extra hardware and and goodies that some of the other students couldn't get. So, so it was kind of a it was a pretty high class production. We had a lot of toys to play with and and did did some really interesting location shoots. We did a locate location shoot uh, at the uh, American Film Institute grounds. Beautiful place that is actually set up to look very Greco-Roman, so it fit in kind of perfectly with our uh, 1500 uh, A.D. time timeline for Michelangelo's life. The big shoot, though, took place at Universal Studios. Now, Universal Studios is very, very famous for its backlot tours. They pile people onto these trams, and the trams drive them around the backlot of the studio, and you see behind-the-scenes uh, movie scenes. You see famous props. You see famous buildings from different movies like The Psycho House or The Leave it to Beaver House. It's a pretty fun place, and it's a pretty fun tour. And it was very exciting for the tourists to see a film in production in the studio back lot. Now, on the weekends, there were no shoots uh, on the studio lot at Universal. Everyone had the weekend off. So the poor saps who took the studio tour on the weekends never actually got to see a film in production, which, you know, was kind of a ripoff. For that reason, Universal welcomed student crews like ours to come in over the weekend to do shoots on the back lot so that the tourists would see us and think, oh, look, they're shooting a movie. Is there anyone famous over there? And of course, there never was. It was just us students. But that's the way it worked. So for our movie, we were set up on the standing sets that had been built back in the 1930s for the original film version of Frankenstein starring Boris Karloff. So it's this sort of medieval village, uh, and there's a huge archway, a huge arch passage leading into the central courtyard of this village. That's where we were doing all our shooting that weekend. And the trams, the tourist trams would go by on the opposite side of that archway, and they would see us shooting our film and get all excited. And we could see and hear people pulling out their cameras and click, 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 taking pictures of the movie that they saw being shot when they took the studio tour. Yay! Well, one of my two jobs on the set that day was to babysit Griffin O'Neill. Now, this could have been an assignment from hell, babysitting a movie star's son. But I have to say, Griffin has dealt with a lot of hard stuff in his life. But at the time, he was about 15 years old. And at the time, he just struck me as a pretty typical 15-year-old guy. Very nice, just wanted to have fun. No problem at all. Babysitting him was real, turned out to be not a big deal at all. He was just a super nice kid. But Griffin did have this one annoying quirk. At the time, there was this really hot song that you, you couldn't turn on the radio without hearing it. It was called In Cars by this technopop artist named Gary Newman. Well, Griffin apparently loved that song, but he only knew two words. So he would just randomly sing those two words, and they were, In Cars... And then he'd just go quiet. And then a few minutes later, he'd go, in cars. 
all fucking weekend he did this. Drove me up the wall. He was okay, though. He really was. And like I said, babysitting him was really not an ordeal at all. But we would get bored because there would be lots and lots of time between setups. And so we would get bored and try to think of funny things to do to pass the time. So one or the other of us came up with the brainstorm that before the next tour tram came by, we would pose in front of that gated archway leading into the Frankenstein village, and we would pretend to be like part of the scenery. Um, Like I would grab a broom and pretend to be sweeping, and Griffin would be carrying a bucket or something. And we would just freeze when the trams went by, so we were part of a tableau. And the tourists on the tram seemed to get a kick out of it. We heard lots of people clicking, click, 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 pictures of us like crazy. And the the tour guides in the tram actually got a kick out of it, too, because we gave the audience, you know, something to laugh about. And it directed their attention toward the filming going on behind us in the Frankenstein village. It was a pretty good time. But eventually, we both got a little bored with that. There was only so much we could do just posing with props and stuff and standing there while trams go by. So then I had an idea. When we had come in that day, I had noticed that about 100 feet down the road where the trams came down, there was a big old beat-up wooden trailer. And on that trailer, a flat, it was a flatbed trailer. On that flatbed trailer was one of the gigantic mechanical sharks from Jaws. Now, the tour tram came down this road in a specific direction, and it just so happened that the shark was placed on this cart so that it was facing the tram when it approached. So the shark is lying there. Its huge mouth is just hanging wide open, and the trams go by, and the tourists take their little pictures of the shark, And I was looking at that shark and I said, hey, Griffin, let's try something. I said, climb into the shark. Next time a a tram comes, climb climb into the shark and just hang out of the mouth like you're being eaten alive. So we waited. A few minutes later, we hear a tram coming. So Griffin climbs into the shark, hangs out. His upper torso is just hanging completely out of the shark and his eyes are closed. And he just looks like, you know, a dead guy being eaten by a shark. And... The tram arrives, and of course, the tour guide has got his pre, pre-written spiel. He's got it, his patter down. Well, all these people see Griffin lying in the mouth of the shark, and they all start taking pictures like mad and laughing. And the tour guide, whose back is towards the shark, has no idea what's going on at first. And then he turns around and sees the shark and sees Griffin hanging out of the shark, And he just burst out laughing. I don't know how long it took for this guy to recover from his laughing, but he was really having a ball. So we knew we were onto something. So for the rest of our dead time between between takes, between calls, Griffin and I just took turns climbing into the mouth of Bruce the shark and just pretending to be dead as these trams went by. And every time they went by, I'm telling you, the clicking cameras were almost deafening. Everybody wanted to get a picture of us with the sharks. So if anybody's listening to this right now and has a photo from an old family vacation at Universal Studios and they show a guy hanging out of a shark, please, please get in touch with me because I would love to have that picture. So that was the first day on our shoot at Universal Studios. Second day, something just as interesting happened. 
My other job, aside from babysitting Griffin, was to be sort of a um, an escort. The front gate of Universal Studios on Lancashire Boulevard uh, had a, a, a guard's office, a guard's booth, and you had to stop in and tell the guard who you were and why you were there, and the guard would check you on his master list of who was supposed to be there for the day. And if you checked, you would get waved in and to go about your business. And if you didn't check, you would be told to turn around and leave. The weird thing about that was if you just drove a mile away from the Lancashire entrance, there was a secondary entrance to the Universal Studios lot that did not have a guard booth. It was (laughs) never guarded. It was the employee entrance, apparently, and you could just drive right in, park your car. There was a little bus stop because they had a shuttle bus in a continuous loop taking people to and from the parking lot and dropping them off or picking them up uh, at the main main part of the studio. So all you had to do was drive into this lot, park your car, hop on the, hop on the, uh, the shuttle bus, and then get off when you got to the heart of the studio, and then you were free to just wander around and sightsee all you wanted. The trick was just to look like you belonged there. As long as you looked like you belonged there and didn't act stupid, nobody knew. I only ever got booted out once, and that was because I took my roommate with me. And I guess two guys was too conspicuous. One guy would have been okay. Anyway, I digress. My job for the film production was I had a schedule of who was due to arrive when. Actors, makeup people, whoever was involved in that day's shoot. And when I knew that someone was going to be approaching the front gate, I would hop in a car. I didn't have my car with, with me at the time. One of the producers uh, had her car. So I borrowed the producer's car and I would drive all the way across the studio lot to the main gate and wait for our person to show up. So I would be talking with the guard. And when our person showed up, I would tell the guard, OK, this is our guy. Let's get him checked in. So we'd get the guy checked in, and then the person who showed up would then follow me back to where we were shooting at the Frankenstein Village. Pretty simple job. But I had to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth several times that day. And one thing I kept noticing, every time I took that drive, I would go past a tiny little bungalow. Pretty little place. Nice little house. It would be a place you could see yourself living in. Very cozy little bungalow. But it was office space. And it was office space for the great movie director, Alfred Hitchcock, who was under contract, apparently, still at Universal. Although he wasn't really active in filmmaking anymore. There were his offices. And I knew they were his offices because on the front wall, near the parking stalls, there was a big, round, metal sign, hand-painted, that said, Reserved for Mr. Hitchcock. So it was reserving Alfred Hitchcock's parking space outside his bungalow. Well, I kept passing that bungalow and that sign over and over and over again all that day. And wheels started to turn. I thought, if that sign just disappeared, who'd ever notice? Really? So at the end of the day, when I made my last trip past the Alfred Hitchcock bungalow, I turned my wheel, I pulled into the parking stall, I went up to the building, I felt the parking sign, turned out it was not anchored to the wall at all. It was just sort of wedged in between the wall of the building and an electrical conduit. And so I was able to slip it out from behind that conduit. I scratched a little of the paint when I did it, but not much. I slid it out. I just happened to have an extra shirt with me that day because the weather was changing. So I wrapped it up in my shirt 
and I put it in the trunk of my producer's car. And then I drove back to our set and just kept quiet for the rest of the day. Well, the end of the day comes, we're done shooting, and it's time to pack everything up. And I'm thinking, okay, the producer whose car this is, is going to find that sign in the trunk. That's the only, the only flaw in my plan was that it wasn't my car. So at the end of the day, suspense is building and building and building. And we get everything packed up and we're driving out of the studio. Producer's driving her car. I'm in her passenger seat. Neither one of us is saying a word. I seem to have gotten away with it cleanly. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, she looks over to me and she says, I love your sign. Well, that was when I knew I was in the clear. And that sign, forevermore, has always hung in a prominent position in my living room. No matter where I've lived, now in the new house in Georgia, it's hanging in the living room right next to the front door. Obviously, I will never get rid of it. I will never try to sell it because that might not go too well. Here's the sad part of the story, though. As proud as I am of that sign, there is also some guilt associated with it because about two months after this all happened, Alfred Hitchcock passed away. And I couldn't help thinking that he must have come to the studio to visit his bungalow to grab some shit he had left there And when he got there, he found that someone else had stolen his parking place because his reserved parking sign was no longer there. And so he had to park clear across the studio and hoof it back to his office, which, of course, killed him. He was an old guy. He was obese. He was in horrible health. You can't ask a guy like that to walk clear across a studio parking lot. So I have always felt um, at least a little bit responsible for the death of Alfred Hitchcock. I feel, I feel really bad about it, but there it is. Uh, I hope nobody squeals on me. I hope nobody's affiliated with Universal Studios, but there it is. That's my story. One last story about my days at USC, and this one actually has some direct relevance to my writing career. That Fifth class that I mentioned that I took when I was at USC, the non-for-credit class, History of Entertainment, was a pretty interesting experience. The class was every week, once a week, I think on Wednesday nights. And so every Wednesday night, I'd hop on a city bus from outside USC, and I would ride it to downtown LA to a place called the Variety Club. It was sort of an old-time social club for entertainers. And our teacher, this guy named Alan Dwan, who I failed to appreciate. Just like in the last episode, I talked about how I failed to appreciate my screenwriting instructor at USC. I also failed to appreciate the instructor of History of Entertainment because this guy, Alan Dwan, turns out he was kind of a big time, uh, kind of a big deal in Hollywood, directed a lot of movies going all the way back to the silent days, silent movies. That's crazy. So here I am taking this course with this silent movie director And he knew everybody in show business, basically. So every week, he would just invite one of his show business friends, usually real old timers, uh, to our class. And he and his friend would just spend the two or three hours we were there just shooting the shit, trading stories about their experiences in Hollywood. It was a riot, that class. It was so much fun. The guests were always really interesting. Two real standouts were... Uh, First of all, this guy named Dick Wilson, who I learned had been a really successful vaudeville performer back in the day. And Dick at that time was actually one of the most 
recognizable faces and voices in America, if not the entire world. Why? Because Dick Wilson starred in a long-running series of TV commercials for Charmin Toilet Paper. Dick Wilson played a grocery store owner named Mr. Whipple. And in every Charmin commercial, these ladies who were doing their weekly shopping would get waylaid by the Charmin toilet paper display because it was so soft and squishable. And these ladies would grab these packages of Charmin and just stand there squeezing it very sensually. And Mr. Whipple would show up and say, ladies, please don't squeeze the Charmin. And, and he would grab the Charmin from the ladies and chase them off. And as soon as they were gone, Mr. Whipple would succumb to his primal urges and he would start squeezing the Charmin. At which point the ladies would suddenly reappear and say, Mr. Whipple, please don't squeeze the Charmin. That series of commercials lasted years and years and years. And Dick Wilson probably made a pretty good living from doing them. And here he is in my class telling these stories about performing on stage as a vaudeville performer. That was a riot. Another guest that made an impression on me was Margaret Hamilton. If that name sounds familiar, you may recognize it from The Wizard of Oz. Margaret Hamilton played the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz. She's the one who had her entire face and hands painted green with this toxic makeup. And in the climactic scene where she disappears in a ball of fire, she actually started on fire. This woman had some crazy stories to tell. But she was very sweet and a really good storyteller and a lot of fun to meet. But the big, big, big guest in the history of entertainment was unbelievably famous science fiction and fantasy author Ray Bradbury. So one night in class, Mr. Dwan just casually drops, oh, next week uh, I'm going to bring in my friend Ray Bradbury to talk to us. I flipped out. I could not believe what I was hearing. Ray Bradbury? One of my idols? The man who wrote The Martian Chronicles? Fahrenheit 451? Something Wicked This Way Comes? R is for Rocket? I mean, the guy's just, he's a legend. And he's going to come to my class. And I need to describe this to you. The place where we held the class, it wasn't a classroom. It was like a cabaret. Mr. Dwan would be up on stage on a stool with with whoever the guest was, and they would just be talking together up on stage. And the rest of us, there were maybe 20, 25 people in that class. And we would just sort of be sitting around the tables, uh, just like it was, like I said, just like it was a little cabaret. So very small class, very few people. I thought, this is an unbelievable opportunity. How am I going to make the most of it? Well, The answer to that question was pretty obvious. I was going to write a story. I had a week. I had a week to write a science fiction story that I could try to get into the hands of Mr. Ray Bradbury, the brilliant author and my idol. So over the next week, I thought and thought, and I started writing a story. I had one, one limit, though. I decided immediately that my story should be no more than like two pages long, three at the max, because if it, was too, if it was too long, he would just say, you know, I'm too busy. I just can't do this. I'm sorry, Mark. So I made sure the story was very, very short. I think it was even less than two pages. And it wasn't very good, I'll be honest. I just threw it together for a purpose. It was a story about a president of the United States, who a newly elected president of the United States, 
who goes on TV to give his State of the Union address. And it turns out that he is a devout born-again Christian. And he gets on TV to inform the American public that he has just triggered Armageddon by firing all our atomic weapons at the Soviet Union. And this was a good thing for all of us because it was going to trigger the second coming of Christ. So that was my story. Super simple. Not very good. But hey, I had a story. So how to get it into his hands, get him to read it, and get him to return it to me. That was the next problem. Well, the day of class, I just happened to get in the mail a 9 by 12 manila envelope, I think from my parents. I think they had sent me some paperwork or something. So it's got my name and address on it at the dorm. And I thought, oh, well, I need something to carry my story into class tonight. So I just idly slipped it into this envelope. Go into class. Ray Bradbury entertains us all for a couple of hours. Wonderful, wonderful man. And in the end, as I said, because there were so few people in class and only a portion of the people in class were science fiction fans or Ray Bradbury fans, I didn't have any trouble getting close to him. And I thanked him for his presentation. I had gone out and bought a copy of the Martian Chronicles that week, so I asked him to autograph it, which he did very graciously. This is back in the days, again, when celebrities didn't charge you to, for an autograph. So I've got my signed copy of the Martian Chronicles, which is a treasure. But then I said, Mr. Bradbury, I wrote a story. I'm wondering if you would read it and let me know what you think. And there was just this flash on his face of, oh, shit. But it didn't last long. He was very nice about it. And he said, well, I appreciate you asking, but he said I could only do it if you can give me a stamped self-addressed envelope. Well... Before I'd come to class, I'd stopped at the student union and bought some stamps and stuck them on the envelope. So as soon as he said that, I held up the manila envelope and said, oh, I've got that right here. And then he got another look of, oh, shit, on his face. But again, it only lasted for a moment or two. And he was like, okay, Mark, I'd be happy to read this. So that was how it ended. I thought I had just scored big time. I was so psyched. Next day on campus... Total fluke. I'm walking to class, and there's a huge, huge crowd outside one of the buildings. So I kind of get close to see what's going on. And and it turns out I could hear people saying, Ray Bradbury was on campus today, and he had just given a talk to a a lecture class, and he was coming out of the building. And this big big crowd of students uh, were waiting to see him and, you know, shake his hand and get his autograph. So Ray's cutting through this crowd. He's shaking people's hands. He's autographing things. He gets within a couple of feet of me, and I just sort of, I just sort of slide my way past two people, and I say, "Mr. Bradbury, Mr. Bradbury, it's me. Remember me from last night?" And he turns around and sees me, and after a moment of, of not recognizing me, he recognizes me, and he's like, "Oh yeah." How are you? And I'm like, "I'm great. Have you had a chance to read my story?" And he goes, "No, I haven't yet, but I will. I promise." And all these people standing around me are like, what the fuck? Who are you? How do you get to monopolize Ray Bradbury's time? Ugh. So I was feeling pretty good about that. And then I felt even better a couple days later when I got in the mail an envelope from Mr. Ray Bradbury. And he sent along a little note, typewritten. It says, Dear Mark O'Connell, It seems to me this is good enough to send to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Send it! Exclamation mark. 
Good luck! Exclamation mark. And then finally, thanks for letting me read it. Best Ray B. Ray B written in his hand. And then he adds, after his signature, if they don't take it, try some of the other six or eight magazines on the stands. R.B. Amazing. Well, I took his advice and I did submit the story to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And guess what? It got rejected. I can't remember how many other. I think I tried to send it to one or two of the other magazines that he had mentioned, other science fiction magazines, uh, and got the same result. It was rejected. But you know what? Who cares? It didn't matter. Ray Bradbury liked it. Ray fucking Bradbury liked my story and thought that I had a chance of selling it. You just can't imagine what an encouragement that was to me as a, as a writer just, just basically starting to come out of my shell. To have a world-famous, brilliant author give me a compliment and give me this encouragement just really changed my life forever. It wasn't until many, many years later when I read this great biography of Ray Bradbury called The Bradbury Chronicles. It wasn't until I read this book that I realized one of the reasons I think that Ray Bradbury was willing to take my story with him and read it and send it back to me with that nice note was because way back in the 30s when he was just starting out as a writer, he did exactly the same kind of thing that I had done to him. He was constantly, he, he, in his teenage years, his family was living in Los Angeles. They were very close to Paramount Studios. He was tracking down celebrities night and day and just popping in front of them and asking for their autographs or asking if they'd look at a comedy sketch that he wrote. He was absolutely bold and fearless when it came to getting his work in front of writers and performers that he idolized. So I just, I read that passage of this book with a smile and just thought, well, of course, of course, he probably recognized a little of himself in me when I ambushed him at the History of Entertainment. And so he went ahead and did me a, did me a solid favor, and I will never be able to thank him enough. The funny thing is, also, in this biography, it tell, tells the story of when Ray Bradbury sold his first fiction, and the editor of the magazine said at the time he thought the short story was weak, but he needed material for the magazine, so he accepted it. Ray Bradbury agreed, saying, quote, It was terrible, unquote. There you have it. And now it's time for the outro. I hope you enjoyed these stories, and I hope in some small way they might inspire your writing in whatever form it takes. Thanks for listening. This has been Farfetched. I'll talk to you next time.